Welcome to the 85%. I'm Afshin Malavi. This week we're talking with Ian Bremer, president and founder of Eurasia Group, a leading global political risk research and consulting firm. He has a new book out called Us Versus Them, The Failure of Globalism. It's a clear-eyed, often bleak examination of the fallout from a globalized world, how those who have been left behind are expressing outrage and fighting for survival, and what governments are doing about it. Bremer assesses the challenges plaguing some of the world's most essential economies and outlines where we might be headed, places that are both dark and promising. Uh, Bremer is a frequent speaker, columnist, and the author of several other books, including Every Nation for Itself and The End of the Free Market. Ian Bremer, great to have you on the 85%. Sure, Afshin. Good to be here. So, us versus them. I guess there's the old adage, uh, where you stand depends on where you sit. So, us uh, depends on where you sit. But but who is us and who is them? Well, look, um, you're right. It is absolutely context uh, dependent. But the purpose of calling the book Us Versus Them is because uh, I've never seen our country this divided in my entire lifetime. I think that's true for almost every advanced industrial democracy in the world, the single exception being Japan, which we can talk about. And that's happening despite the fact that the global economy and our economies are actually doing better than at any point since the financial crisis. So when things start turning problematic economically, rates go up, indebtedness becomes more of an immediate crisis, um, then it's obviously going to get worse. So this is the principal challenge to liberal democracies in the world today. And we can talk who us versus them is in all of these individual countries, sure, but the point of the book is that civic nationalism is unwinding. We're seeing just the ripping apart of the fabric of our political institutions because these countries feel so divided. Steve Bannon said something really interesting in, in one of his interviews after uh, President uh, Trump's election, in which he said, uh, you know, the American middle class, I'm paraphrasing, was gutted, and the Asian middle class grew. Uh, you, you quoted that in, in your book. Uh, and, but when you look around at the world, um, the Asian middle class has been growing. Uh, we've made enormous advances in reducing poverty around the world. Uh, the World Bank figures state that the percentage of people living in extreme poverty fell from about two-thirds of the world in 1960 to less than 10 percent in 2015. So, I mean, but th- this is a victory of globalism, isn't it? No. Not at all. It's a victory of globalization. Those are two completely different things. Um, Globalization has been fantastically successful for all of the reasons you just suggested. Um, I just finished uh, Hans Rosling's new book called Factfulness. He's the Swedish demographer who sadly just died a few months ago. Um, And and he, he talks about, and I'm sure you're aware, of the extraordinary improvements in humanity in terms of life expectancy, which is up over 70 years now, um, literacy, um, you know, uh, uh, inoculation rates globally, which are up at about 80% right now. I mean, demographics, we no longer worry that we're going to end up with 15, 20 billion people because as people get more educated, they stop having kids that won't necessarily make it. Um, all of this kind of stuff, right? So this is all great. But globalism has failed, and globalism is an ideology uh, from the West, from leaders and elites in the West, that open borders, free trade, 
the United States providing security with our allies globally um, and ex access of technology to everyone would be good for our countries and all the constituents of our countries. And it has been absolutely great for the globalists, but it has clearly failed the average American, average European, average Canadian, average Australian. Um, and that is a very serious problem. That's why you got Brexit. It's why you got Trump. It's why you got the Italian election results you just have. And it's why we've seen these trends in anti-establishment sentiment literally across the entire swath of advanced industrial democracies. That is the failure of globalism. Um, it's why my brother voted for Trump. It's why my mother would have voted for Trump if she was still alive. Um, and it's why there were no capitalists uh, growing up with me in the projects, because none of them had capital. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you write, Ian, uh, uh, really well here. Globalism contains the seeds of its own destruction. Uh, even as it makes the world better, it breeds economic and cultural insecurity. And when people act out of fear, bad things happen. So some of those bad things are happening now. It's, it's not an economic failure. It's a political failure. There's plenty of money in the developed world to improve this. There's plenty of money to make infrastructure work for people, to give people educations that they won't be displaced by automation and AI. We are choosing not to do this. Look, I mean, I honestly, Afshin, I should have written this book in 2009 after the financial crisis with the Occupy Wall Street movement. And I didn't. And the reason I didn't, I was thinking about it. I was talking about the issues. I'm like, you know what? It doesn't matter enough. People just don't care. And that was an accurate reflection of 2009. But I still should have written the book because I should have tried to make people care. And I didn't. Um, and there's an enormous amount of complacency precisely because we can tolerate enormous amounts of structural inequality in the West, and we can just dispossess a whole bunch of people. They're not going to revolt like in Tunisia or Egypt. They're going to get angry, and they might vote for someone that we don't like, and then they're going to go back and say, well, there's nothing I can do. And let's keep in mind, this was the most important election of any of our lifetimes in the United States, and far more people decided not to vote than voted for Hillary. So uh, that tells you something very significant about what our country feels like right now. That, that's a good point. And, and, and I guess it seems, Ian, you know, people care now. And it seems that you've hit, uh, you know, this book at, at, at a very timely moment, probably because, you know, everybody's talking about these issues now because of the election of Donald Trump, but also the rise of Bernie Sanders in the United States, the populist left and the populist right and Brexit, of course, this wave of populism in the West. Now, is this wave of populism going to be with us for the next decade? Is this going to be something that is just a, a permanent geopolitical feature of our lives? It's going, to be, it's going to get worse before it gets better. That's certainly true. And in part, it's because people don't get it. Uh, people understand there's a big problem of division, of tribalism, of us versus them. But they actually blame Trump, right? I mean, the established classes, the mainstream media, uh, we, we see this incredibly play out that, you know, it's gotcha. He misspelled a tweet. Gotcha. Look how embarrassing he is. Uh, look, look what a thug he is, what a cretin, what a villain, right? And I mean, look, I, I, I personally agree that Trump is by far the least fit, least capable president we've ever elected. But the problem is not Trump. The problem is that we allowed our country to get to the point 
that the vast majority of Americans either would vote for Trump or wouldn't bother to vote at all. Um, that tells you much more about the problem. It's the complicity of the mainstream media and the political leadership of the Democratic and Republican parties and the business leaders and the public intellectuals, um, you and me included, right? We just mm -hmm. didn't do enough. We didn't care enough as our country was allowing this discontent and anger to seethe. And not just in the U.S. It's not unique here. It's happening all over the developed world. Now, obviously, in that environment, it's going to get worse because there are no solutions that are being proffered by the governments of the developed world. I mean, you know, it's not like Trump is really draining the swamp. He talked about infrastructure week for a couple days. That died. He talks about building a wall every day. He talks about the cheap populist solutions that aren't really solutions. They're symbolic. He had a big win, of course, with the NFL and getting them to uh, refuse any taking of the knee because you've got, you know, black athletes and white fans, and so you can stoke the racism there. But um, he's not doing anything that's going to make these people feel better. I mean, he's given some tax breaks, no question. Most of those breaks go into the corporations and the wealthy. But that massive spend when times are good on things that are purely short-term sugar and long-term as the economy actually hits a downturn and interest rates go up, who do you think is going to get hit? It's going to be the entitlements for the same working and middle class. So actually, we're setting ourselves up for this to get much worse. Um, mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and I think the reason why I wrote the book, this is a fairly depressing book, let's be clear. Um, and and I'm not, I'm not a, a depressing person. I'm an optimistic person. But I kind of feel as if I were a climatologist writing about climate change 40 years ago. If you're writing about something where no one's even addressing the biggest issue, you don't start by talking about solutions. You start by saying, hey, like you need to recognize that this is a problem and it's going to get worse. And then you can start to say, what are the solutions we might be able to work on? What are the experiments that we need to try much more of? I mean, when people started dealing with climate, they started all of these experiments, many of which failed, some of which have succeeded. Solar power is now cheaper than coal, right? That's a, that's a successful experiment. 10 years ago, Al Gore didn't think that was going to happen. Now it is. Um, and I think what we need to respond to us versus them are a lot more experiments on the gig economy, on universal education, on universal basic income, on improving the social safety net, uh, you, on, on decentralization of governance. I mean, you name it, from the private sector, from governors, from mayors, from philanthropists, from religious leaders. And I don't know which ones of those are going to work, but we need um, you know, a very large factor more of those experiments starting before we can actually see what are the things we want to invest in at scale. Right, right. Uh, no, it's a good point. And, and, and so let's, let's flip this to the emerging world now, um, Ian. Uh, you know, at the Emerge 85 Lab, uh, you know, we've named it because 85% uh, of the world's population lives in Asia, Africa, Latin America, and the Middle East. We believe that this rapid urbanization, growing middle classes, unprecedented connectivity represents a truly geoeconomic transformation. We, you've talked about the Hans Rosling statistics. There's other statistics about this extraordinary rise, but everything has a flip side, right? And so where, where you stand on these issues, again, depends on where you sit. And if you are Unilever or Coca-Cola or Starbucks or McDonald's or Adidas, and you see these growing middle classes rapidly urbanizing and connecting, you say, I want a piece of that action. But if you are the governments of these countries, uh, if it, and and you 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 hike uh, the price 
price of a bus by nine cents as they did in Brazil, or you remove a subsidy, and suddenly you have a protest on your hands that gets out of control. It tells you that 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 the story is not all that rosy in the emerging world either. There's a lot of countries and a lot of cities and a lot of regions on edge, uh, living day to day with rising inequality. So spin that and tell that story about the us versus them in the emerging world. Well, look, there's no question that globalization economically has been a much more uniformly positive story in the emerging market world. As you said, Steve Bannon recognizes that we have created a true middle class in Asia. That's a great story in Asia. And life in India and China uh, feels a hell of a lot better today for the average Indian and Chinese. And we're talking almost 3 billion people right there than it did 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. So these are countries that support free trade uh, and they support open borders. Uh, They want tariffs to be relatively low. Certainly in Latin America, same thing. But uh, middle classes also are empowered with more information. They have higher expectations. And in Brazil, for example, in Mexico, in some ways across Latin America, you see much more opposition to corruption. Uh, and a willingness to throw the bums out uh, if uh, they don't actually act as if they're really legitimate representatives of the public interest. That's likely to grow. Where I see the emerging market challenge of us versus them really getting big is as automation and AI takes jobs away from them. These are countries that are poorer, they have less resilience, their political institutions are weaker, so they can't tolerate the same levels of displacement, and they won't respond with the same level of political apathy and ennui that we do in the United States and Europe where people are much richer, and if you kick someone out of the middle class, they don't suddenly starve, right? I mean, if my mother thought that I was going to starve because the system was rigged, she would have killed people. She would have, right? She would have been, she would have been a criminal. She didn't care, right? And that would have been the right thing for her to do, by the way. But that wasn't a problem. So instead, she read the National Enquirer every week, and she would have voted for Trump. A different kind of response mechanism, right? Where, I mean, in Tunisia, people did actually take to the streets, and in Gaza, people were willing to risk their lives because they see that there's no hope, and it's a much more dangerous alternative for them. So I think that when you start to see that the jobs that all went over to the emerging markets because they had labor forces that were cheaper than the developed world, well, now that labor rate has gone up as global markets have become more efficient. And you start to see automation and AI um, and 3D manufacturing and other developments with the fourth industrial revolution, as it's called, start to strip jobs away from those countries. The very jobs that they got in manufacturing and in services, well, I mean, if you're the Walmart, um, you know, and you could restart in 2018 your global job force, you wouldn't want to be producing goods out of China for the United States. You'd want to take labor out of the system and produce for the consumers where the consumers actually are. And they're, they're making that happen. That'll probably speed up a lot more dramatically with the shock when we have our next recession. That's when these things usually happen much more quickly. When that happens, these countries are going to suddenly experience vastly greater degrees of populism. The response will be much more tribal. The most interesting potential exception to that, of course, is China, which not only is going to soon be the largest economy in the world, but also is not a democracy. Um, Instead, they are a state capitalist authoritarian system. And the ability of the Chinese government to actually invest massively in employing 
inefficient labor is one of the strengths of the Chinese system, where in the United States or in India, if someone is really inefficient, right, if you've got a free market economy, more or less, those people might find themselves on the street. Ian, you cited a study in in your book uh, from the United Nations that said two-thirds of all jobs in the developing world are at risk from automation. That's extraordinary. Two-thirds of all jobs in the developing world are at risk from automation. Uh, but then you also cited some studies earlier um, in the book, and we've we've you know we've we've heard about these studies about kind of um, optimism levels, right? When you ask people in the advanced industrialized democracies how optimistic they are about their future and about their children's future, in Germany they're bleak, in France they're bleak, in the U.S. they're bleak, in the U.K. it's bleak, but in Nigeria they're more optimistic. In in the Philippines they're more optimistic. In India they're more optimistic. In China, so. Do they not know what's about to hit them? Well, I mean, look, first of all, um, if you're Nigeria and, you know, you're coming from a system that has been, you know, really abject poverty and no infrastructure, a small amount of, uh, of uptick and education can really like make life better. Uh, and, and automation is not going to hit Nigeria first. It's going to hit Brazil first and Mexico first because you've got, you know, sort of much more expensive uh, wage rates there. Um, you know, before the computers are going to have to get a hell of a lot better before you really want to start saying, let's take all the Nigerians out of agriculture, for example. Um, but no, look, I mean, it's, and some of it's cultural. I mean, you know, I've been to Nigeria. I do find it extraordinary how no matter how bad life is, this is a people that just are like trying to say, hey, we can find an opportunity, we can make this work. Uh, you don't find that in Russia, for example, where you know, for many historical um, reasons, geographic reasons, cultural, religious reasons, you know, the view is uh, big power is out to screw you and life is going to be miserable. Uh, it's like the only country in the world where people think life gets worse as they get older as opposed to people usually as they hit 60, 70, achieve more wisdom and say, hey, I'm going to actually enjoy myself for the time that I have here. Isn't this a wonderful gift? So, you know, maybe we need a little more uh, Taoism um, among the Slavics um, would mm -hmm. be useful. Yeah. So I don't know. Look, I'm, I'm not a cultural anthropologist. But um, right. the, uh, the fact is um, we don't know what technology is going to do to jobs. Uh, we know a lot of jobs will be displaced. Um, we know it's speeding up. Some, most people that are technologists say this is going to create even more jobs than before. Um, they say that not because they know. They say that because um, that is very aligned with the kind of businesses they're trying to build. Remember, the watchword in technology is disruption disrupting the existing model, disrupting the existing jobs. And they presume there's a utopianism around that that presumes that it's going to be awesome for everybody when we know that what they're really focused on is that it's going to be awesome for them. And, uh, you know, we call it the fourth industrial revolution because the people that are driving it want us to consider it to be even bigger, even better than the first three industrial revolutions. They could easily be wrong. It could be the post-industrial revolution where most people don't have anything productive to do. That's absolutely possible. And, you know, before we just cede to them the intellectual high ground on this issue, let's remember that Mark Zuckerberg, who was everyone considers to be one of the true ingenues, a true genius in this field, was just running circles around Senate 
giving his testimony and saying, well, I had no idea that uh, Facebook would be so divisive to society in the West. I mean, I, I didn't, who, who could have known that? So and, and I absolutely believe him. I think that he really didn't know. But I also think he had no interest in finding out because he's really focused on making sure his company is successful and his business model is antithetical to Facebook causing problems and being divisive in society. So, you know, every piece of data that moves in that direction, you need to either ignore or subvert um, unless you're forced to address it. And so all of the people that say it's going to be a fourth industrial revolution um, we sh- we, there's no reason to believe them. Um, we should absolutely be agnostic about whether or not there'll be more jobs. I'll tell you that you know when you get to the point that artificial intelligence starts to really displace people because it's becoming cognitively uh, advanced, it's hard to understand why these AI systems would get to just almost the capacity of a human being and then stop. I mean, that's not what happened with horses. I mean, technology got just to the point where they could displace horses, and then it kept going. And within 20 years, which is the lifespan of a horse, when, you, when the horses wore out, we stopped paying for horses, and we started paying for steam engines and other machines instead. And within another generation, there were only 10% of the global horse population was still in place. Uh, because we no longer needed horses. They were a drain on society. There's no reason why that is not a plausible outcome of a post-industrial revolution. And the only way you fix that is not by constraining technology, which we're not capable of doing, but instead by fixing the politics to ensure that we are going to move away from our existing capitalist model to something that will take care of people when labor is, is disentangled from capital. You mentioned the politics. Do you see the role of government fundamentally changing, perhaps crystallizing, or is what we expect from government getting increasingly fractured? I mean, what what should governments do in this environment you're describing? Well, we expect an awful lot more from governments, but the problem that I see is that our political institutions are no longer capable of keeping up with the speed of technological change. Um, and so that means that, uh, I mean, our expectations are getting greater and greater, but our political institutions are more and more sclerotic. And that's not true uh, in all political institutions. Again, uh, you can do strategy more effectively if you're authoritarian state capitalist. So that is an advantage for the Chinese, which worries me quite a bit because I don't prefer that system. Um, it also tends to lead to more decentralized governance. So, for example, um, states and cities uh, that are smaller, that can have a better a- ability to touch their constituents and are more homogeneous, seem to be more effective in being able to respond to these sorts of challenges. But I mean, what it may amount to is that we're going to need new political institutions that are actually created by our new technologies. So maybe distributed ledger is ultimately the way you deal with fake news, is you know you create a blockchain type system where every piece of news is actually uh, is, is proved to be attached to a direct source, and you can't play with it. We don't have the ability to do that right now, but uh, new technologies might allow us to actually create new institutions that ensure the sanctity of our information, which could, again, rebuild something that feels more representative and more liberal and democratic than where we are presently heading. Mm, that's no, it's good. It's a, g- a good point, particularly about the speed. It seems like 
history has a new velocity in our world today. Ian, uh, you know, I, I love the anecdote about how the telephone took um, 75 years to get 50 million users and Angry Birds did that in 35 days, right? Yeah, so yeah. so it, it clearly we're, we're talking about a new velocity in our world today. Um, so let, let me just close with, uh, you know, as you said, you are an optimistic person. I've known you a long time and I, I can, I can uh, confirm that. Um, uh, but but this book, you know, it does have some bleakness in it, and and I think to some extent, do you, look, you Ian Bremer, uh, who goes to Davos, who you know attended elite institutions, and and could, you know could be seen from the outside as you know a card carrying member of the globalist set, right? I mean, you talk about your background, and I know your background, and and uh, uh, you know living in the projects in Boston, and really you know bootstrapping your way to where you are. Uh, but did you do you feel like um, other people who are in this set, you know? Uh, uh, are speaking out enough about the kind of issues that you've raised in this book? And is this kind of a clarion call for the Davos set to, to be looking at this more closely? Look, I mean, when I said before, I thought that I should have written this in 2009. Um, you know, I think one of the reasons I didn't is because I was too much in the Davos mindset that everything would work out fine. And uh, they weren't talking about this topic. They didn't think it mattered. So maybe I shouldn't think it mattered, and maybe they wouldn't take me seriously if I were writing about this, and maybe they wouldn't invite me back, right? And, and that's really the wrong mindset. And, you know, if I write about the failure of globalism and the folks at Davos don't like it, well, they just have to deal, right? And, and I guess, um, you know, I think I've been around long enough um, to recognize that sometimes, you know, you have to say things that are unpopular, um, even if that means that some people aren't going to listen or are going to shut you out. Because, no, there aren't a lot of people in the Davos set. I mean, this year's Davos was, hey, the economy's back. This is awesome, right? And, and Trump came, and he was treated incredibly well by Klaus Schwab uh, in ways that were, were unnecessarily friendly, frankly, in, 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 uh, in, in how much uh, kissing up was done at the beginning of that introduction. I, I didn't like that. That was, by the way, it was certainly not just the WEF. I mean, all of the CEOs uh, that attended, the American CEOs uh, and the European CEOs who, you know, couldn't get over themselves were talking about how important the, the um, you know, the, uh, excuse me, let me start that again. And it wasn't just the WEF, it was also the CEOs, the American CEOs who were there couldn't get over themselves in talking about directly to Trump. Um, so excited to say how brilliant his, uh, you know, sort of new tax plan was and his regulatory rollback was. And I mean, th this is enormously short term behavior uh, focused on shareholders and fetishizing growth from people that really should know better. Um, and uh, I'm not willing to do that, right? I mean, I'm, I'm just not. I mean, the whole purpose of Eurasia Group as an organization is that, you know, we're, we say whatever we think is actually analytically true, and it doesn't really matter if it's pro or anti. Um, it's not about what's good or bad. It's sort of where the analysis is leading us, and, and I fear that in a world where we're getting so much more divided and that news is only what you like as opposed to what is, that you know, it's becoming much harder to actually do that. Um, so yeah, it's a clarion call, and I think to the extent that you know, I have a company and a platform and people out there that actually believe in what I say and what we say, it would be um, a real irresponsibility for me not to use that to talk about what I think some of the most important truths are right now. 
Awesome. Well, well Ian, I want to uh, allow you to end on your more uh, optimistic nature. Um, you know, you, you know, where are some of the optimistic notes that you see in all of this? Uh, you know, wh- wh- what can we be hopeful about uh, in in this us versus them context? Well, the fact that China is not failing, I don't like a world that might be dominated by the Chinese model in another generation. But if it turned out that China needed political reform or they were going to fail, uh, they'd be in experiencing massive social instability right now. We rely on their growth. I'd rather Americans build infrastructure than Chinese. I'd rather Germans and Japanese. But the fact that no one else is doing it and the Chinese are going around the world and building bridges and building ports and building railways and trying to build schools, um, I mean, frankly, that is going to take a lot more people out of poverty, and that's a great thing. So that's, that is optimistic. I mean, the world may be moving away from the West, but humanity is accomplishing more. And, you know, I put my political hat on. I get depressed about where the politics are going. But you put your economic hat on, your educational hat, your human lifestyle and expectancy hat, and those things feel good. Um, the other thing that is uh, that I that really gets to my existential optimism is you only see the best from human beings when they're in flow state, when they're being challenged, when they're doing things that matter. Uh, you know, and we're now going to be entering an environment in the West where some of the most talented human beings on the planet um, are going to be really challenged. More is going to be expected of them, and I think we're up for that. Um, Everything we've seen in history at what human beings are capable of not only tolerating and living through but also creating um, shows that there's reason to bet on humanity so far. Um, So for all of my worries... Uh, I will tell you that uh, certainly what I've seen over the course of the past few years has motivated me and everybody in my firm to do a hell of a lot more to try to make a difference that's more positive, profound, and long-lasting than we were doing uh, before we recognized that. Um, And I don't think we're unique. I know we're not. Uh, So I expect that those sorts of experiments are going to be happening all over the world. And as this becomes more challenging, it will. Um, then a lot of people that um, that we uh, respect and think a lot of um, are going to be up for making a difference. Ian Bremer is president and founder of Eurasia Group. His new book is Us Versus Them, The Failure of Globalism. Ian, thank you very much for being with us on the 85%. My pleasure, man. And that's it for this week's show. The 85% is the production of Emerge 85. Visit our website, emerge85.io, for more interviews, profiles, and features on the many changes unfolding in the emerging world. We're also on social media at E85Lab. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.